Welcome to the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast, hosted by veterinarians Dr. Lewis Kirkham and Dr. Robbie Anderton, who'll give you the inside scoop on the secret lives of your pets and have a lighthearted look at the latest animal news, health tips, and other random facts. All names of people and pets have been changed for confidentiality, so if the story sounds familiar, don't flatter yourself. Every owner is just as animal crazy as you are. So sit down, place your furry feathered or scaly best friend on your lap, and it's over to Lewis and Robbie. Welcome, listener. We are here, episode 208 of the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast. Um, I'm Dr. Lewis Kirkham, and I'm joined again this week by medical scientist um, and former lab manager of clinical pathology at the University of Melbourne Vet School down at Werribee, Deb. Welcome, Deb. Thank you. Um, how's your week been? Good. Good? It's good been a week? good week. Yeah? Yeah, we've yes. been... We've been reasonably busy. We had had some up and down days um, at work this week. I reckon things have, have just quietened off a little bit the last couple of weeks. So, um, but anyway, it's up and down. That's what the vet industry is like, isn't it? Yes, there never seems to be any rhyme or reason, but it tends to worry people a little bit, doesn't it? And you go, why are we so quiet? Or Definitely. we're not as busy as last week. And why is that? Is it the cost of living or is it because it's grand final or the you know finals footy season or school holidays and everyone's turned their attention to something else other than their pets but it always makes us question ourselves and what's going on exactly and i had one nurse i worked with who said always that a week before mother's day it was always quiet <laughs> but there's nothing no any mother's day at the moment so i don't know i don't know how that rings true oh, so it was always before an election it's quiet because oh. people are not sure what's going to happen and how they're going to allocate their money and i don't know i don't know that any of those trends ever really ring true yeah, no, it's hard to know, isn't it? Anyway, it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason with with what sort of happens. I had a bit of a run this week of a couple of dogs coming in. I've got the book in next week with what's called base narrow canines. Oh, um, now base narrow canines is is common in puppies. Um, particularly, we see it quite a bit in the sort of the oodle breeds. You know, the cavoodles. Mm. The uh, Labradoodles, the what other doodles have got? Boar doodles, all the dude, all the oodles. Mm. I guess poodle crosses the smaller dogs, um, and uh, that's just our printer taking a moment. <laughs> um, might have heard in the background, uh, and so uh, it's where uh, puppies. Oh, we do see other dogs. So one was a Great Dane, and one was a Cavoodle, I think, and it's basically where their bottom uh, canines, which are their front sort of pointy teeth that you you traditionally see on dogs, I suppose, when they growl at you, those big sort of front teeth. And the puppy deciduous teeth obviously a lot sharper. Um, and what can happen in some of these guys is the those bottom teeth aren't sitting in the right spot. Mm-hmm. So normally they're sitting outside, the, um, they point up and outside the top jaw. Right. Um, but in this case, that bottom jaw is narrow, so those puppy teeth actually poke up into the hard palate up in the top top of the dog ouch um, and exactly that it is it is painful we we do it's definitely painful you know you think about mm. anything poking into um you know into your into your hard palate all the time every time you bite down on something and so both these dogs had on one side they've got um they've got these uh, what we call base narrow canines and the interesting thing with it is I do think that these dogs often mouth a lot more oh. and mouth a lot harder. Oh. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, you know when you have eat a steak or something like that and you get it stuck between your teeth and you get that sort of irritated mm. gum yes. and you really like kind of 
if you floss it or you know to get it out, it's like feels good, but it but it hurts. Yes. And so I sort of think, and you put pressure on it and it hurts, but it kind of feels good yes, in a way. Yes. Yes. You, you sort of think it's going to fix it. If it hurts, it's going to fix it. Yeah. And I just wonder if these dogs uh, bite a bit harder because that's that that sort of all that kind of. Um, yeah, there's some sort of mechanism of sore but not sore mm. and, and feeling good to chew on things. And certainly that was the case with the Great Dane. The owner had – obviously Great Danes are bigger as well, but she, she was wearing old clothes. She said, I can't wear any good clothes. She had holes in her tracksuit oh. and her T-shirt just from the dog sort of pulling – Pulling on her and instantly, interestingly, I, I didn't think of the teeth and sort of we we're just chatting. I, I normally um, uh, have the dog on the on the ground. Yeah, it was a, I think it was a second vaccination. Yeah, it was a second vaccination. So I had them on the ground, just chatting to the owner, just you know, throwing treats on the ground, getting the dog used to the consult room, mm-hmm. enjoying me being in there, thinking, hey, this guy's not scary, rather than sort of coming straight in, bang them up on the table and examine them. I'd, I'd much rather they, they play around on the floor and we have some fun. And often talk to the owners about what the problems are, and so we talked about mouthing and and from a behavioural perspective how to how to go about and help it, and maybe um, talked about getting some some trainers to help her as well. She felt you know she was just concerned. Oh, no, sorry, it was correct that she did have some trainers and they were helping with that. But we sort of talked about some other things we could do, and then eventually I did get the dog up on the table. Great Dane, probably the last time it's going to be on the table, I mm. think, given its size, and had a look in its mouth, and I said, "Oh, that's possibly a reason as well why it's mouthing so mm. hard." So, so what we tend, tend to do, and I've got both dogs booked in this week, is we do take out those bottom canines because they're painful. Yes, um, and then there's a bit of uh, conjecture about what to do next because the concern is when the adult canines come through, are they going to do the same thing? So what a you know what. I tend to recommend is actually getting the dog to uh, start mouthing on a hard ball. Yes. Like a hard rubber ball. It has to be big enough that's wider than the width of the the jaw, the lower jaw, so that when they mouth on it, hopefully if they're doing this regularly several times a day, it will encourage those adult canines on the bottom jaw when they start erupting through that they'll start pushing outwards and so won't poke into the hard palate. So, yes. so that's something um, that's something we do see more commonly. And so good to check if you think your puppy that you've got is a is an excessive mouther. Yes. Um, something good to check is um, is have we got canines that? And it can be hard to check because yes. the the great Dane didn't want me to touch touch those teeth or go near those teeth because they're uncomfortable and painful. And same thing with the cavoodle. So it's mm. really really hard to. You know, you're trying to be nice, feed them treats and do everything good by them, um, but then you've got to examine the mouth that's uncomfortable. So it's, yes. it's, it's, it's a bit of a catch-22. And I often put peanut butter sort of on my fingers and things and sort of smear it around the mouth and you know, make it hopefully a more enjoyable experience or something something for them. So, yes. So, yeah. And then also this week, in a similar sort of vein, um, I had a, a what's called, what, what I call a pre-purchase consult come in, which... Um, I don't get very many of those. No. But I do love it. I yes. I really, really enjoy it. So um, uh, the nurses thought it was a little bit weird that the owner, you know, well, not the owner, but a, a dad and his son came in and said, I just want to talk to a vet about getting a dog. Oh, if only more people, <clears throat> excuse me, wanted to have those conversations. And I guess you're ideally trying to match up a potential dog with the family and their lifestyle and what's going to be sustainable for them. 
totally. Oh, exactly. And and you know, it, it was great. You know, it was. Um, I think they'd spoken to one of the other vets, maybe Julie, and she'd said, "Oh, come and talk to Lewis." Um, and she'd suggest talking on the phone, but they owners wanted to come in, which is great. You know, it means means you can. Yeah, have a better conversation, I suppose, and just mm. gauge out. So, so he was in with his, I think it was his ten-year-old son. I sort of, not really sure of the age, but that how it looked, and and the dad was very much, oh, it's going to be the son's dog, and and um, and that's a few concerns. So their main concerns, I think, was an interesting uh, was that the dog would become a one-person dog. Oh, so that was one concern. Second concern was that uh, the dog would shed hair. Because mm-hmm. they'd had a long-haired dog in the past and it shed hair, and the third concern, interesting, was that the dog would get separate would get separation anxiety and how to prevent sort of this from from concerning. And so they're very sort of different sort of thoughts. So the first thing was you know the concern about becoming a one-person dog, mm. um, and that uh, and that if they went away, maybe like the father, the I think there were four people in the family, so mum and dad. Um, a son and then his sister mm-hmm. and the sister and the mum had said we'll have all the care but no responsibility right so I think it's your dog you you two decide you want to get a dog yeah sure we'll play with it we'll do all the fun stuff but we're not you know we're not uh, necessarily toileting we're not brushing we're not uh, picking up the poo those sorts of things mm-hmm. which is fine that's that's a good yeah if that's that's the way the family wants to work but they were they were happy to walk it and feed it and things mm-hmm. like that as sort of needed so um uh, the interesting thing is the one person dog scenario does happen we certainly see it um uh i guess if you know we talk about wally Yes, who, uh, my my brother's dog, certainly very very attached to Dad and and Joe. Yes, uh, sorry to Sam, my brother, and and to Joe, but then perhaps not so much to the kids. And the big thing the studies have shown is it's the person who walks the dog is the one that the dog is usually most attached to. Right. So I said to him, if you want the dog to be attached to either of you, you just need to be the one that walks it. Right. And they're like, oh, but what if it decides mum? It's like, well, no, it's usually the one who walks it. So if you walk the dog the most, that's the one that the dog will be attached to. And then, of course, there's feeding as well. And if you do training and using treats, then obviously the dog's going to seek you out um, for those things as well. So, So that was really good. And then the second thing, was obviously the shedding and, mm-hmm. and they'd, uh, you know, I always get very hung up on sort of first generation oodles and, and second generation oodles and, and this one doesn't shed and that one sheds and this one sheds. And I think it's a bit of a shock to owners when I say all dogs shed. Yes. All dogs shed fur. They uh, That's the nature of them. They, they grow fur and it falls out, um, a bit like myself, but sometimes yes. a little bit more than... Yes. More, than, <laughs> more in some dogs. So obviously if you if you if you've got a long-haired dog it's going to shed more and it'll be more visible than perhaps a short-haired dog. So that's certainly something to consider. He was like, "Oh, but but if it's a cavoodle it's going to shed less." And I'm I'm not convinced that mm. there's any studies that says a cavoodle maybe sheds less than say a labrador similar length coat mm. or, or that sort of thing. So be very careful of that. It's a very good marketing ploy, I think, to say to say that a certain breed sheds less. I mean, if they're hairless, yeah, they won't shed at all. Is it just that those breeds are less antigenic, so perhaps people don't notice it as much? Ah, uh, yeah. So that's another. That's little, another little <laughs> con- yeah, hot button yeah, topic. Yeah, little topic. Yeah, is are these hypoallergenic 
dogs or are they not? I'm not not really sure. You need to talk to a human allergist, I imagine. But I think if you're allergic to dogs, then you're allergic to dogs. There's not some no. breeds that No, and are... it's not necessarily the hair. It's the dander, isn't it? The skin that you're allergic to. Oh, well, we're really getting into messy territory here so i'll stop and let's go back to the <laughs> well you're getting, you're getting beyond my you're getting beyond my uh, expertise but in cats it's the dander right um and certainly there are some foods you can feed cats that decrease their uh, allergenicity to or reactivity to to humans certainly but i'm not sure about dogs and being allergic to dogs and that, actually that's interesting how to um a a guy as well that uh, came in and he said he'd, he'd recently had a blood test himself um, where it looked at his DNA and from his DNA was able to tell what he was allergic to. Oh. And from this test he da- <laughs> had done, it found out he was allergic to uh, paracetamol oh. and dogs. Right. From his DNA test. I thought, okay, um. that's interesting. I think there's okay. a big difference between genotype and phenotype. Oh. So yeah, I don't know how I got yeah. that from the DNA. I just went, oh yeah. Well, he said That's to interesting. Me, it's interesting. He said to, yeah, he said to me, he's in the, he said, oh, you know, oh, you've been interested in this. I had a DNA test done. Um, sent some bloods off overseas to have a DNA test to um to find out what I was allergic to. And I said, oh, did the results come back that you you're actually a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> some of those DNA tests, I remember back in uh, very early 90s when I first started in clinical pathology and and Professor Virginia Studdett was the head of medicine and she was very much into skin and allergies and there were those sort of first generation allergy tests that you Mm. could send off for pets Mm. and we used to do all our special little, um, you know, fake tests and we you oh, know yeah. we used to cut hair bristles off brushes and send those off for of allergy yeah off hair brushes and i can and, and toothbrushes and all sorts of stuff and i think we used our own hair at some stage and we just would open up these results and laugh our heads <laughs> off you know the brush um was allergic to wheat and fish and all sorts of stuff oh. so it was just a it was a good um not necessarily a controlled study that we did, but gee, we had some good laughs over it. So I don't know if I want to put your client's um, DNA test into that category of something that's interesting, but perhaps not terribly accurate. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure what the what the uh, double placebo controlled <laughs> trials show up from that sort of thing. We're sort of getting a bit off topic though, aren't we? But um, and and then the the third thing they were concerned about was separation anxiety. How yes. to how to make sure their dog sort of had, you know, um, didn't get separation anxiety. And that, that's a difficult one because I, uh, from my understanding, there's no sort of true um, uh, uh, true link between anything necessarily, um, a dog getting separation anxiety and, uh, and anything that's sort of done by an owner at a young age or in a, in a puppy sort of situation. I mean, there are some things that maybe contribute to anxiety, but um, but the main things we sort of talked about is is you know separation anxiety in young puppies and they were keen on t- crate training, and I think the most important thing is is not having the puppy too distressed. Number one, mm. when they're crate training, mm-hmm. and number two, when they go out and and leave the, leave the dog alone. So so we sort of talked about crate training, and I guess that the, the difficulty with crate training is is yes, if it works, it's great, mm-hmm. um, and needs to be done in a controlled manner where you're making the crate a fantastic fun 
you know, food-related, treat-related environment to go into. The dog wants to go in there. You're throwing food in, or the puppy wants to go in there. You're throwing food in there. You're feeding us in there. There's some maybe bedding in there, like a T-shirt that the owner slept in in there for them to cuddle in with, um, and it's a fun environment. It's a really enjoyable environment, and, and maybe even initially not even shutting the crate door mm-hmm. on them, and then uh, and then making sure that you know over time if you do shut that crate door if it's bedtime maybe you know and they were going to have the crate in their bedroom which is great you know close to the owner at night time that's perfect um that if they shut the door that the crying on the you know or if the the dog's upset it's only upset for a minute or, or mm-hmm. two at the most and if it's getting really distressed and really going at the carrier not settling down um then you do need to make sure because that that triggering of that anxiety mm. can make that anxiety sort of for the for the crate worse. So so there can be can be some separation anxiety um, sort of developing there. So so making sure you're giving something fun in the crate when mm-hmm. they go in there and 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 um, and keeping an eye on them, make sure they're not not too upset. Obviously, if they seem like they're crying for a little bit during the night, taking them out to the toilet and then putting them back in the crate and and, and keeping an eye on them. So um, and then the other thing with the separation anxiety is. You know, they were sort of like, oh, we're, we're going to do it during the holidays. I'm going to take a month off work. This is the dad, oh. you know, I'm going to be home all the time so we can, you know, look after the puppy. And I said, well, that's fine, but that's not real world. No. So it is important from almost, you know, a few days to settle in. But then, okay, we're going out today. We're going out to, to put the bins out or something mm. like that. So when you leave, you give the puppy something enjoyable mm-hmm. to do. So maybe that's a Kong with some wet food in there or peanut butter or some cream cheese or something really enjoyable. And you go out, you put the bins out for a few minutes and you come back again before the puppy even sort of really knows too much that's going on. We're not getting distressed. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you are lengthening that. So you might go the next day, go out for a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. you know, take away coffee, go and get the coffee. You're back in sort of five or 10 minutes before the puppy gets too distressed and just lengthening that time. Because the worry is if you have a month at home with, yes. with no one's ever, uh, never, you know, ever away, mm. thinking that you're doing your best by the puppy and then suddenly you leave to go to work for nine hours um, <laughs> or go you, to school. Yes, and you wonder why. Puppy's so upset. Exactly, exactly. So, so that that was sort of su- stuff we talked about. And then, after I addressed their concerns, then I got onto my things that I think can really help. And perhaps, perhaps a good idea. We can go through some of the stuff. So, they had a, a website that they they said, "Have you seen this website?" And you know, they showed me. Uh, I don't really remember what the website was. Lots of cute puppies on the website, mm. and and I, I thought, oh, that that's really great. But but the biggest thing that and you, you know from what I. What I've said to, to people and friends of ours is the biggest thing that I like to yeah. have happen is, is before you get the puppy, see... A mum and dad. Yes, very, very important. If you can go out to the place where mum and dad are, that has so many benefits, long, mm. potentially long-term for, yes. for, for your puppy. I mean, there's no studies really at all about predictive behaviours mm. of, of um, you know, choosing a puppy on a certain characteristic at, at a young age. Certainly they've done lots of studies, particularly with guide dogs and, and you know, because they obviously would love to be able to pick a puppy out of the litter that's going to be an amazing guide dog yes. versus the puppy that's not going to be able to concentrate, but they can't do it. And often it's not until, you know, 18 months of age when they can do it. So the thing with the guide dogs, they spent 18 months of money on that dog mm. to then not become a guide dog sort of thing. So they've done lots of studies and there's nothing really 
that specifically says one puppy's going to be sort of you know a good a good guide dog or not but yes. but there are a few things you do and the biggest thing i think is going to see mum and dad yes. you know it 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 um allays so many sort of issues i have with one uh you can see the environment yes that mum and dad have been brought up in so um and there there is some studies that shown that dogs uh raised in a deprived mm. environment with no access to people, no socialisation, yeah. um, in, a, in a you know a puppy, I suppose a puppy farm is yes. the worst scenario of that in a cage environment, um, and they do become um, out as um, you know, emotionally stunted puppies. Yeah. So, so gold standard I said to them was you go out to the to the house and it's a family environment. It's got some young kids that are mm. your sort of age. And they've had two dogs and they've had some puppies. Yes. Um, and they're, they're a part of the family. You know, they run around, the kids are screaming, you know, all that sort of thing. It's, it's, yes. it's uh, not an overwhelming environment, but uh, but the dogs are part of the family. Well, it's, it would seem to be the, the um, environment that would more closely replicate what you're going to have at home. And I think that if you can see the parents and you can see that family environment, you're dealing with a totally different kind of breeder. You know, they it's a, it's a different kind of breeder. Yes. Certainly in my work offering Von Willebrand's disease service, um, before anti-tail docking legislation with Dobermans, I used to see lots and lots of litters of Dobermans throughout the year, which was the best part of my job, seeing all these beautiful puppies. And it's interesting when those puppies come into a consult room, you can tell the ones that have been within someone's home yep. and raised indoors, mum's there, um, whole families there looking after these puppies compared to perhaps a larger scale breeder that's got dog runs out the back mm. and those puppies are just out the back and perhaps interacted with a couple of times a day as opposed to being totally integrated with the family. So if you want an animal to be integrated with your family, if it comes from that in the beginning, you will see a different type of um confidence was what I could always see was that you, your puppies from a family home are very confident and they're curious whereas the other ones that were perhaps from out the back in the dog run were scared of their own shadows right. yeah That's yeah, yeah. Okay. so in a consult room you know you've got things like a might have a, a broom or people yep. coming in and out of the door well these puppies were terrified you wow. know whereas the other ones are sort of oh they might be taken back for a minute what's going on but then they're rushing forward to see who is that new person or can I bite that broom on the floor or right. yeah so i think it's it's quite obvious really yep yeah yeah we've got a little visitor that wants to come in the recording studio olive olive will we let olive in she probably thinks it's lunchtime yeah, she doesn't probably she probably does all right we'll keep going um <laughs> <laughs> the um well it's interesting that's that's something i do i'll come back to the parents in a sec but you sort of uh raised a um a uh, a little bit. Uh, Deb's just going to let Olive in, <laughs> unconnect, and let Olive in. Um, is is uh, certainly um, uh, you know the I think um, when you're trying to choose a puppy, um, that's probably a, something that um, that certainly is, is good to consider. Is um, is when you've got the pups there, you don't want to choose a pup that is the sort of scared, fearful puppy that's that's sitting in the back of the uh, you know, back of the house and doesn't come and interact with you. But then necessarily, you don't necessarily want the puppy that um, that that runs up to you. 
um, is the first one to run up to you. You want the one that's middle of the road. And then also I say, um, you know, if you are there, similar to the to the broom or people coming in out of the consult room, is I tell uh, prospective owners to actually drop a pair of keys or something on the ground to just give a bit of a startle to the puppies. And you really want the puppy that um, that gets startled but then goes comes over and investigates the mm. keys, not gets startled and, and runs off and you know, hides away and doesn't interact. Um, but you want the one that... Um, um, that uh, that sort of gets a bit of a fright, but then recovers fairly well. But then coming back to to the parent sort of situation, um, certainly looking at mum and dad, mum and or dad can give you some indication of what the puppy is going to be like. Mm. So if mum and dad are terrified or they're you know barking at you and backing away and not wanting to come and say hello to you. That might be a little bit of a red flag that maybe some of their genetic material might be passed onto the puppies, mm. so you may have some some sort of uh, fearful puppies. And sure. and I've heard all the excuses, you know, over the years of of, of breeders saying why they can't, um, why you can't see the dogs. And the classic ones are, you know, oh, we're interstate, we'll fly the puppy down to you. Um, but here are some photos. It's yes. like, well, photos don't tell you anything. Um, or oh, we're, we're in the country, we'll, we'll meet you at the local BP mm. um, petrol station or you know, or 7-Eleven and we'll do the transaction you know, in the back of the car or, or something like that or we'll fly the puppy down. They're things that you really want to try and avoid. Um, you know, these, um, uh, this dog's going to be part of your family for, for a very long time. So, so I do say the gold standard is yeah, that family environment where they've just had some puppies. Um, and there's you know family environment that's sort of your top of the top of the range gold standard that's what what I'd be certainly looking for and then from there the very worst scenario is you you either one not allowed to see the environment or two you go to the environment and it's terrible conditions it's you just think it's disgusting mm. um, and so don't be tricked into taking a puppy from there because it's hiding you know and you feel sorry for it yeah um, you know it's the last one left we're going to put it down whatever I've heard all the stories. Mm. Um, you know, oh, you can't see mum and dad because you might have parvovirus on your clothes. So you can't visit mum and dad and you can't come and visit us. And, oh, it's COVID. Mm. Well, it's not COVID anymore. Um, certainly COVID's around, but it's not COVID anymore. So, um, yeah, re- really important if, if you can do that. So, um, and, and I guess then, you know, they, they want to talk a little bit about breed as well. And, yes. And they, they, you know, looking at a cavoodle breed. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff, misinformation about breeding breeds. Yes. Um, certainly, the studies show that there's more variation within a breed than there is between breeds. Really, from, from a behavioural perspective, yeah. So, um, so but certainly you can pick a breed a little bit on some of the traits. So obviously, if you want a dog that's going to run all day, um, you know, chase sheep. Uh, round up sheep well yeah you're looking at something that has some traits towards what you want to do a kelpie or you know a border, border collie, collie. Mm-hmm. exactly um but if, if you perhaps you know um you know you want a dog that's going to relax on the couch all day maybe maybe a, a greyhound or something like that so so there are some traits you know that um or a, you know a jack russell that keeps going all day you know pretty active sort of dog so there are some traits but then variations on behavior really within the breed and the only way you're going to determine that is is by doing you know going to see mum and dad mm-hmm. you know checking out the puppies that sort of thing. The other thing I did say is if you're going to check out a litter of puppies, maybe they're you know three four weeks of age, is 
often not going with the child with them, oh. with the son with them. Oh, and that's that would a be very, very hard. difficult <laughs> thing to suggest because the, the worry is you go with the son. And of course, you go and see a litter of puppies. Mm. Any young boy, girl, whoever, whatever it is, is going to fall in love and, and beg to have one of the dogs no matter what. So well, the parents very, aren't immune from that either. <laughs> that's very true. It's very true. So very hard to be objective um, because, yeah, you will fall in love with, with the pups you see. So so just be aware of that too. Um, uh, and then obviously um, the big thing was bringing the dog home. So yes. I said, look, you probably want to ideally get the dog at about eight weeks of age um, and, and bring it home to your environment. And then the most important thing is doing some socialization with that dog. Um, lots of breeders will, will tell you, you know, you've got to lock the dog up because they get parvovirus mm. until they're fully vaccinated. Really, you, you can get vaccines that end at 10 weeks, so you can socialize those dogs easier. But also in, in areas like certainly when we are in, in a Melbourne, we do, it's called the Melbourne Umbrella mm. by our Mark Kelman, who did a PhD on parvovirus, there's a there's a Sydney area where we just don't see parvovirus. So yes. I tell owners to, as soon as they get home, they're out walking the dog. Yes, just walk it on the night strip, walk it up down the street. Don't go to the dog park yet or the dog beach, um, because other dogs from outside this area can come to those. If you've got family or friends' dog or dogs that you know are vaccinated, then it's important to meet those dogs as well in a in a neutral sort of manner. But but socialization and socialization. You know, people sort of out walking, but it's not really a walk. It's just standing with a dog on a lead. If they're worried about something, just sitting with them and letting them, you know, check it out. Um, you know, watch cars go past, see trams, trains, whatever mm-hmm. it is in, in your area. Um, and if you are concerned about parvovirus, certainly in Australia, one thing that you can do is is uh, go to somewhere like Bunnings that allow mm-hmm. dogs. Um, and there's lots of people that are going to come and say good day to you in Bunnings. It's a fairly clean environment. There's not haven't been a lot of dogs around. Um, and there's all sorts of things like you can wheel the lawnmower around and yes. stuff like that. Get us used to all different things too. So going to Bunnings is a good one, or another store that takes them, maybe Walmart or something like that over yes. in the US. We've got a, quite a few USA listeners. So can you just talk about that window of socialisation? Why that is so important at that particular age? Yeah, so dogs' socialisation period is, well, somewhere between three weeks and three months of age. Mm-hmm. So during that period of time, they need exposure to um, to as many different sort of uh, animals and people um, as, as much as they can. So ages of people, nationalities of people, uh, different colours of people, uh, people with disabilities um, and, and uh, kids. Uh, so that then when they become older, they're the best, most rounded pets they can be. They've had those exposures. And what happens if they've been deprived and they don't get that exposure until after 12 or 14 weeks, they're often terrified of it um, and, uh, and and you know, scared of kids or scared of, of people um, of, of a different age or scared of people in a wheelchair or something like that. So, so it is... It is a critical period in their development. Um, it's a known research period, um, and it's very, very important um, that you um, that you balance that um, uh, between socialisation and protecting your puppy from um, 
uh, from parvovirus as well. So if you are concerned about parvovirus in your area, certainly talk to your vet. And hopefully they're a, a more adv- advanced vet, I suppose, that, that, that know about the socialization period and, and are willing to, to teach you how to avoid the risk of parvovirus, if that's something that's a big, big risk in your area. Alrighty, now that chat seemed to go on a bit longer than than I anticipated. I, I think uh, can't imagine how that happened. Yeah, no, not like me to talk on, is it? So, uh, hopefully, that gives people a bit of idea. But um, if if you've got a, a, a you, you know you think you're getting a new puppy, um, so oh, they paid a consult for that, but that was for free. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but we it's are very important. We very, are very important information. All of that, I yeah, think. Good. Especially, yes, when people's emotions are involved, you've got to have some objective sort of ideas about what you're trying to achieve and, um, yeah, make the best decision for your family. Excellent. And uh, I guess we are paid in some sense by – we are supported by Zilkeen, aren't we? Yes. uh, Thank you very much to Zilkeen, the mild anxiety-lowering medication um, that – uh, that uh, comes in a capsule. It can be open and sprinkled on food. It's very palatable. Um, uh, you can get, also get it in treats now as well. It's available at, at your pet shop or at your vet clinic. Um, and also a big thank you to Delicate Care, uh, the Australian-made, Australian-owned um, food. They've got uh, skin and stomach for, for your dog, uh, mobility support, um, you know, we're coming out of the winter months, but certainly if you're finding your dog's had a bit of arthritis, it can be a great uh, great diet that's enriched with glucosamine, chondroitin and green lip muscle. So get on down to your vet or, um, yep, to your vet for some delicate care, or you can go to uh, www.delicatecare.com.au for more information or a stockist near you. And also, Wonderful. And also a big thank you to our Patreon supporters, um, we really uh, appreciate um, your support. Um, you know, it keeps us keeps us ticking and, and keeps the keeps the mics and uh, enables us to purchase a new mic when the one broke last week. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been too much me and Robbie yelling in them. I think that, that broke it. <laughs> and then it's quite possible. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty, and all advice on this show is general in nature, so please consult your veterinarian before following any advice for your pet. We do our best to provide the most up-to-date information, but as veterinary medicine is continually advancing and changing, please let us know if we have missed anything. Mm. Now, last week, you very, um, very interesting topic. You had some good bit of feedback during the week from a few people saying that uh, your chat about the microscopes and use of the microscope in clinic was very helpful. So, oh, that's good. So, is it, is it part two? Well, I just wanted to um, talk about something that you raised, which mm-hmm. I thought was perhaps slightly unusual. Oh, here we go. Um, because you said that you looked at you sometimes look at urine under oil, which yeah. which that sort of makes me laugh, actually. It's probably because I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, do you, so just talk me through. You've got a urine like sediment. you're setting me up here. No, I, well, I, I, the listener might perhaps draw some parallels between their microscopy mm-hmm. and yours. So Mine's I, terrible. Well, I won't, actually, I won't put you under the microscope, pardon the pun, <laughs> I will just say that as a person who's probably looked at 100,000 mm. urine sediments in my career, 
I've never once looked at a urine under oil. So I think Yeah. This oh is, well, no other eye. No. No. So no. so the standard way would be you've got your microscope slides, you've got your urine sediment, mm-hmm. cover slip. Or yes. no cover slip, Lewis. Well, we do it uh, you are putting me on the spot. Yeah, so, so we do it okay. three ways. Okay. So we um we yeah, spin spin the um obviously spin the urine sample down and for the um, for the listener out there, we do do urine tests in clinic. Yes. Um, and we often get we'll get you the owner to collect some urine for us, or sometimes we will be able to get it with a needle into the bladder. Yes. Um, and then we which have, which of course is what you want if you're thinking you need to culture that urine. You want a nice sterile sample. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and then we do do you know urine tests. And so for the for the uh, the 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 owner out there, all they do is give the urine over and then it disappears and we do tests. But this is behind the the, uh, the clinic wall, I suppose. And, yes. And so one of the tests we do is looking at the sediment in the urine, which is looking at what cells or bacteria or crystals there mm-hmm. might be within that urine. And we actually get a little bit of urine, we spin it down and it concentrates to the bottom or settles the sediment. Um, kind of like if you've got a perhaps a bottle of red wine or something like that, and you leave it standing for long enough, the bottom they get mm. some, yeah, you get some mank bits <laughs> at the bottom, of it, or a kombucha or something like that. Yes. You get the mank bits all settling to the bottom, or yes. orange juice. It's a bit like that, and then we suck out those those uh, that sediment bit, mm. and then this is what we're talking about: how we examine that sediment yes. bit. So, what I would generally do, and the nurses normally do that, is I'll do a wet sample where we put some sediment a drop of sediment on the slide and then put a cover slip over that yes i'll have a look at that but then they will do a second slide where they put a drop of sediment then dry it okay air dry or uh yeah usually air dry and then stain it in a diff quick stain so we can have a look at both sort of samples Mm. so okay so is that wrong I just your pause would I, say it is. No, I, I would. I would never say that anything that anybody does <laughs> is wrong. And I think this is something that students would often ask me about: is why did they do something in this way at yep. this clinic and something? And I always say people do what works for them. Mm. So continue doing what works for you. I'm just trying to help make sure that you're not doing something that's not going to give you the results that you want. So generally, I. And perhaps it comes down to microscope quality. So I would generally only look at stuff high and dry. So that means with a with a urine sediment, I've got my drop of sediment on the slide, cover slip, mm-hmm. and focus on 10 times and then go up to 40 times, and I would see everything that I want to see there. Right, right. With a blood film, how are you looking at a blood film? You're doing... Uh, we don't do a lot of blood films, oh, okay. but if we have to look at one, we'll, same sort of thing, stain it, uh, smear it, stain it, and then look at oil on 100. Yeah, so the high and dry that I would recommend that you do there is you've stained blood film, drop of oil, cover slip, and 40 times. That's high and dry. Oh, so you have oil between the cover slip, slip and the sample. Yes. So you put oil on the film. Right. Just a drop. You don't need to flat it. Then cover slip. Yeah. I think the issue we got is that, like we talked last week, our 40 times on the microscope is um, is not very good. It's been contaminated with oil, yeah. I think, and, and not very clear. And so the thing is also, if you do the high and dry with the oil 
and then the cover slip and the 40 times, then you're not using oil on the actual yeah, objective. Sure. So then you're not trashing your well, 40 we, we, times. But we use the microscope for other things like yeah. e smears. So mm. I, think, I think it comes from a little bit my use of my e smears. So e smears I will go to 100 times with oil on there and that's what I'm used to looking for bacteria. So then you should be able to say bacteria with 40 times. Yeah. Because I can say everything with 40 times. So well, try. Well, just I, try. I stroke, well, that, yeah. Is try. It, I'm making excuses, but that's like you said. You'll do what works, but just yeah. try. Try doing So anyway, let's go back to the year. <laughs> no, back. but I don't want to talk about urine. Oh. I wanted to talk about high and dry. So. So, but, but when we do the urine, so you think we should just be using a 40 times with that. Uh, the drop of oil on, then the microscope slide on that. And then what are we looking for at the 40 times? You can see everything. You can see everything. So you can see the crystals, obviously. Yes, you can see everything. And then you're seeing bacteria. Yep. So without, so that's where you're turning the phase down. No, I don't do anything. You don't do anything. No, you can see them. You can just see them. You can see them. I've been experiencing. I don't know. I've given you all of my photos, all of my training photos. I'm happy to share my training photos with the listener. If they want my urine training photos, all of mine are 40 times. Excellent. Is there a fee for that? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. Uh, So that's that's all I wanted to say was high and dry, give high and dry a go. So if you're looking at a blood film and you want to do, say, um, look at platelet numbers, if you're looking at, or are there platelet clumps in this sample? High and dry. So your dried blood film, drop of oil, cup of slip, 40 times. That's high and dry. Give it a crack. Yeah, I will. No, we'll definitely give it a crack. Definitely give it a crack. Because, yeah, like I said, we're doing sort of the two different ways. And I think it's, for me, it's, it's, I think I have trouble seeing um, bacteria, um, I feel. And then also that, that, that 40 times objective is, is quite, you know, it's quite contaminated many times Mm. just because it's been swept through the oil. So, and that would have to be a whole clinic change. So anyway, no, yes. interesting thoughts, though. <laughs> yeah. So did you have more on the microscope, or was it just no, a, that's it. just a dig at me? No, no, no. <laughs> I was just not a dig. It's not a dig. It's more just trying to to um, find the root of the problem. You know, yeah, like right. why are you using oil to mm. look at this stuff? Because mm. you don't think bacteria bacteria is not small. Bacteria yeah, right. bacteria is bigger than a fat droplet. Yeah, right. Or can be. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, no, sorry, I'll re no, cancel that. Bacteria <laughs> is bigger than amorphous crystals. Right. Yeah, okay. And All if right. you can see amorphous crystals, you can see bacteria. Bacteria is pretty characteristic in the way that it looks. It's yeah. either, you know, bunches of grapes or strings of sausages and, you know, you can see it. Yeah. Okay. All righty. I'll send those photos to anybody who wants them. Yeah, well, yeah, send us an email <laughs> to vetstalkpets at gmail.com if you want to. If you want a copy of Deb's uh, Deb's um, sediment shots, yes, yeah, great. Good. Well, actually, I wanted to moving on. I think uh, I just want to talk about pilling cats. Oh yes, or or medicating cats. Perhaps is is more the uh, more that that I want to talk about. So this is a uh, this is a I think it was an email I got um, from Low Stress Handling Group um, about. Uh, um, how to medicate your cats and um chance are, and sort of at some point in your life um your cat is going to need some medication um and making sure your cat receives medication can be challenging and stressful 
Absolutely. Um, transdermal medications, which are applied to the inside of the ear flap, are not always ideal or effective, while liquid medications tend to cause a mess. There is the, Then there is the question, did my cat actually eat any of it? Uh, it's often hard to know how much medication actually made it onto the cat and how much is on your shirt. Uh, so true. Um, so there are many different ways to sort of pill a cat. You know, some methods, you know, you look on the internet, use force, um, while others involve trickery and bribery. I mean, you can always wrap your cat in a towel and try and open their mouth and force it down and, you know, and then give them a little bit of water to make them swallow. Often not most ideal method. The cat will eventually learn to hate you um, and, and won't let you near them, especially if you pull a towel out. Um, you know, other people, you know, I use certainly at work, um, if I have to pill a cat in a consult room, I'll use a, a pill popper or sometimes a pill gun. Oh. Um, that sounds terrible. Doesn't it? it does. Yeah, I think in America it's called a pill. Well, of course it is in America. Not pill in Australia because we're got laws against that. No, <laughs> so your pill popper, I call it, um, which means, you know, it just means I don't get scratch, scratch and that's what I've, I've been used to using for the last 20 years or so. So there's that, that as well. Um, but over time, you, you'll find the cat, if you're using those methods, the cat will start actively avoiding you or try to scratch you or even bite you. And then it comes to the question of... of um, what if you could get your cat to willingly eat medications from your hand Ooh. or come to ask you for more um, and saying this is a reality? All it takes a little bit of flexibility, ingenuity and preparation. We certainly know with Olive, she loves anything in a syringe. Yes. So if I pull out a syringe, we have had it on um, anti-inflammatories in the past, a liquid, and she, she loves that, comes yes. over for it. And so anything in a syringe, we can give her some water in a syringe and she thinks it's amazing. Mm. So, so that's certainly how we sort of uh, get around it a little bit. But uh, give us a few methods here in this, um, in this article, which is by Christine Calder, um, who's a, a, uh, a behaviour specialist over in the States, I think. So method one is an easy one. Find something you can easily hide a pill in, such as a pill pocket, Piece of lunch meat, baby food, charro, uh, charro, charro. <laughs> really? Oh, not a charro. Now you're thinking the, the, like charro the Spanish with the, dessert. Yes. No. <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't know if Olive would eat a charro. She'd want it dipped in chocolate Which for one? Sure. Chocolate or oh, salted white caramel? Cho- oh, I don't white know. chocolate? Charro. What is that? Can't do chocolate. Charro. It's, a, it's like those dying creamy treats. Oh. But I, I think it's only available in America, although I think it might have come to Australia. Oh, okay. But basically, it's a tube sort of creamy treat sort of scenario. So, it's a brand name. Okay. C-H-U-R-U. Um, or, or a bit of cheese. Um, it doesn't have to be anything special, just something you know your cat will eat. No questions asked. Some people even use a food in a syringe so you can get some foods at your local vet that you can really sort of mix down and get into a nice, um, nice mixture. Uh, obviously, you just coat the pill, feed it to your cat from your hand in their bowl, or even some people even accidentally drop it on the floor. Oh. Uh, and the cat's oh, like, like Olive, when she comes around, we're grating cheese. Yes, especially She's, when you're cooking. She yeah. knows you drop a lot of food, <laughs> so she hangs around loitering with intent. And for the listener, that's when I'm cooking, not when I'm eating. <laughs> no, it's so cooking. <laughs> I think I'm... <laughs> Method two... Uh, what if there's a way to get your cat to come to you to willing take their medication? That would be amazing. To make this dream come true, it all starts with a mat. 
Just like dogs, cats can easily learn how to station on a mat using positive reinforcement techniques. This behavior is not hard to teach, but it takes some takes some time and a little bit of skill and preparation. If you start when your cat is young, chances are this is a behavior they'll remember for life. If your cat is older, don't despair, they can still learn. It may take a little more time for your cat to figure out what causes the treats to appear and how to keep them coming once they start. But once your cat figures out the game, it'll be easy to slip a pill into one or more of the treats. Chances are they'll gobble it up like the rest without a second thought. If you don't have the time or desire to teach this behavior, you have another option. Use a non-slip bath mat and or a lick mat that you can buy from um, um, uh, buy from your pet shop and either bring it to your cat or have them come to you. Which method you choose doesn't matter, but if you're electing to have your cat come to you, make sure you are consistent in the location. Mm. Bring the bath mat out twice a day and give your cat three special treats on this mat every day. Once again, make sure it's something you know your cat will eat. Offer treat number one, followed by treat number two, then quickly follow up with treat number three. The goal would be to place the medication in treat number two Mm. eventually. Make sure to put the special mat away after your cat finishes their treats and walks away. Method three is a variation of method two, but you add that licky mat in there um, and and smear the the object on the licky mat. Um, Method number four, um, you can also purchase empty gel caps, which are like sort of empty gelatin clear capsules. And some cats will actually eat them out of your hand. Like they're, they're tasty. So you can put several tablets you know, in there or powders in there as well. So that can work too. Um, and then there are some other ways, which are, there's some great videos. If you go to cat training and handling videos.com, so that's uh, cat training and handling videos, all one word.com. And you look under the medication tab, there are some great training tip videos um, by the owner of that site. The amazing website. Go and have a look at it. And so one way they talk about is, is actually using a textured surface, like a towel or a mat. And if you put a sort of a, a creamy type of food on that, cats will just instantly eat that food oh. just because it's on a textured surface. Really, really good. So go and have a look at that website. So cattrainingandhandlingvideos.com and, and look under medication. So hopefully that gives people some ideas of, of things they can do, um, you know, to get their cat to take some treats. Uh, yes. Use a little bit of ingenuity and food yes. so you're not wrestling them and, and mm. fighting with teeth and nails Mm, well it sounds like a a bit of a process um that will be very helpful in the future for people if they've got to medicate their cats yeah all righty well look i think um if you got any more you want to wrap up i think we should wrap up i I think think we talked um quite a long time i think i've talked way too long that's for sure um uh, I guess next week, I, I thought we might talk about a little bit about vegan diets in cats next week. There's been a, a study that came out uh, just recently. It's had a little bit of news about it and, and whether or not vegan diets are suitable for cats. And and perhaps we might analyse that study a little bit and uh, and um, we might do that next week. Very good. All right. Oh, well, we- my carryover topic then will be... Um, Serum versus plasma. Oh, okay. And why do we have all those different coloured tubes and what are they all for and why is that important? Cool. Awesome. That sounds great. All right. So if you've got any questions or you want Deb to send her her sediment shots, <laughs> go to twovetstalkpets at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Two Vets Talk Pets, and also on Instagram as well. 
Alrighty, scratch you later. Signing off. Thanks for listening to Two Vets Talk Pets with Lewis and Robbie. To chat further about this week's episode or ask the guys any questions, search Two Vets Talk Pets on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or send an email to Two Vets Talk Pets at gmail.com. You can find Lewis on Twitter with the handle at VetBehaviorist, and more importantly, as the two pet heroes return to their day job of saving animals' lives, be sure to thank them with a five-star review on iTunes. Every time you do, a small, cute animal will receive a cuddle.